following content contains adult subject matter, including sensitive material, and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences, therefore discretion is advised. It's nearly midnight on December the 19th, 1988. 22-year-old photographer Lorraine Benson is on her way back from a work Christmas party and plans to stay overnight at her friend Peter's house. He's heading off on a gap year to Australia and she wants to see him before he goes. They've agreed that he'll meet her at Rains Park train station and walk her the short distance back to his mother, Lotta's house. Leaving the two colleagues she travelled with on the train, Lorraine steps onto the platform at Rains Park, pulling her coat tight around her to fend off the winter cold. Hers was the last train of the evening and the station is almost deserted. When she walks through the main concourse and out onto the street in front, she realises that Peter isn't there to meet her as he'd promised. Not wanting to stand around in the cold alone, she crosses to a phone box to call his home. The smell of old cigarettes and stale urine hits her as she steps in. She lifts the receiver and fishes a coin from her purse. Dialing Peter's number, she's relieved to hear Lotta's voice answer. Establishing that Peter is still out with friends, Lotta says she'll drive over and pick Lorraine up, but the young woman refuses the offer of a lift. It's just under a mile along a main road to Peter's house, and the pavements are well lit, so she tells Lotta she'll walk it. She hangs up, saying she'll be there in 15 minutes or so. An hour and a half later, there's still no sign of Lorraine. At 1.20 in the morning, Mick and Lynn Benson, Lorraine's parents, are pulled from their sleep by the phone ringing in the front room. A bleary-eyed Mick answers the phone, only to hear a panicked Lotta asking, Is Lorraine with you? Confused, Mick says he thought Lorraine was staying over with her. Lotta explains that Lorraine called from the train station at midnight and said she was going to walk the well-lit mile along Coombe Lane because Peter hadn't been able to pick her up. She tells Mick that his daughter never arrived. She's already reported to the police, so Mick tells Lotta he's on his way over, knowing that police don't usually rush out to a missing person call. He races off, leaving Lynn and Lorraine's older sister Karen to sit together at home, fearing the worst. Lorraine's not the kind of girl to disappear without letting her family know she was safe. So something must have happened. Hoping against hope that when he gets to Lotta's house, you'll find Lorraine has turned up with some silly excuse for making them all worry. Mick's heart sinks when he sees there are two police officers already waiting. When he asks why they are there, since there's no evidence of anything criminal yet, the officers reply that they answered the call immediately because there have been a number of sexual assaults in the area recently. Mick and Lotta are horrified at the thought that Lorraine could be another victim of such a terrible attack. What they can't know at this point is that Lorraine's body lies just a few hundred yards away, already slain by an elusive killer. They can't know either that her murder will go down in history as the first case in the British legal system to have a conviction secured using DNA profiling.
I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential. The show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. At Wimbledon Police Station, D.C. Jenny Wood the sole female detective constable working there, gets a call in the early hours of the morning from her detective inspector. He suggests that she acts as family liaison officer in a case where a young woman has been reported missing in the early hours of that morning. DC Wood's first question is, why? Why does CID need to be involved this early? Usually there is a 24-hour wait after an adult is reported missing before an investigation is launched but her DI assures her that they have good reason for being concerned. In Kingston, an area neighbouring Rains Park, a team of detectives have already been working hard to identify the perpetrator of a series of attacks on women over the past few months. Unsure whether Lorraine had just got worse for wear at a work party and gone home with a friend, or whether her disappearance is somehow linked to these other cases, DC Jenny Woods is sent to question friends and family early. After a few conversations with Lotta, Mick and Lynn, DC Wood becomes convinced that something untoward has happened to young Lorraine Benson. She learns that Lorraine called around midnight to say she will be walking alone, albeit along a bright and wide main road, for a journey of about 10 minutes and hadn't been seen since. Even from a few simple questions, it becomes clear that Lorraine is not the type to leave anyone worrying. Her father, Mick, confirms that she always calls to tell them where she is and let them know she's safe. DC Wood's senses tell her they should start looking for the young woman seriously tonight and not wait a moment longer. All she has to do now is convince other, more senior officers to act quickly. Inspector Wayne Henry is the duty officer on that night. He agrees that they need to begin investigations early and orders a search of the area for Lorraine. Despite the late hour, police begin conducting as many inquiries as they can to try and find out what has happened, or better still, to find Lorraine. In many cases like this, the father is often a prime suspect and, 
though he's not aware of this fact yet. Mick Benson is asked to accompany police in their search for his daughter. Of course, he goes willingly. After all, he's not going to sit around waiting for news. What he doesn't realise, though, is that officers are hanging back, letting him lead the way to see if he turns where he shouldn't or acts in any way suspiciously. Mick is quickly rejected as a suspect, though. Investigators verify that he was at home with his wife in another part of London at the time Lorraine went missing. Peter, the friend who failed to meet Lorraine at the train station, is arrested. He is shocked and devastated when he hears the news that Lorraine is missing, and that shock quickly turns to anger that it is him the police have targeted, rather than finding the real culprit. While Peter is being interviewed, other officers are busy conducting a thorough search of his home, looking for clues as to what might have become of Lorraine. They find nothing, however, and Peter is quickly excluded from inquiries. He was with friends at the time, and he's clearly anxious and upset about finding his friend. Of course, these early lines of questioning have to be conducted to rule out foul play closer to home. Now, with the most obvious suspects cleared, Scotland Yard must refocus. Their primary goal is to find Lorraine, but that is no easy task in the dead of night on a torchlight search for the tiniest of clues. The most direct route from A to B would have taken Lorraine down Coombe Lane and eventually right onto Holland Avenue. The initial walking search of this route uncovers a leather-wrapped hoop earring glinting in the darkness near the entrance to a secluded gap in the houses. Police ask Mick whether Lorraine owns any such earring, and he feels a surge of relief when he says that she does not. But Mick is thrown from relief to despair when he calls his wife Lynn to double-check, and she remembers she lent Lorraine a pair of her own earrings, a pair of leather-wrapped hoops. Police invite Mick and Lynn to the site where the earring has been found, to see if there are any other items they may recognise. The opening, little more than a carport, is strewn with litter and rubble, but in the torchlight, Lynn is able to identify that the earring is in fact the one she lent her daughter. The fear and dread washing over the parents is palpable. The youngest daughter is missing, police are concerned, and this solitary earring lying in the dirt is the only trace of her they have so far. The earring is a significant find for the police. It means they're almost certainly right about the direction Lorraine walked from the train station. Next to be found is a bag with a change of clothes in it. This second discovery, also confirmed as belonging to Lorraine, means that the search area now needs to be sealed off to ensure that nothing can contaminate any vital evidence that might be found. It's time to call in the big guns, the forensic team from Scotland Yard. Supported by local forensic officers, known as SOCOs or Scenes of Crime Officers, this elite group will do a fingertip search of the area gathering every scrap of evidence they can to help secure a conviction. Until they find Lorraine, though, police are still unsure what crime they're even investigating. In this more detailed search, forensic officers discover that a car parked at the end of an alleyway off Coombe Lane has signs of a recent disturbance on it. The vehicle has obviously been there for a while, 
and a thick layer of dust has gathered over the paintwork. It looks as though a body is rubbed up against the metalwork, returning part of the car door to a shine. Did Lorraine struggle with her attacker here at the end of this alleyway? Crucially, also found near to the car and the alley is a used handkerchief. It may be something or nothing, but it's certainly an item the team can work with. They have new techniques up their sleeves, DNA profiling being one of them. And a used hanky must surely contain a lot of DNA. The floorboards creak. The walls, they moan. The house seems vacant, but you're not alone. This October, Parcast invites you to celebrate the spookiness of the Halloween season with all new episodes of Haunted Places. From an infamous murder farm in Indiana to the ghostly tombs and palaces of ancient Egypt, visit the world's most haunted destinations and find out what happens when a soul leaves the body but doesn't leave the grounds. Enjoy new episodes of Haunted Places all month long, free, and only on Spotify. While fingerprinting and blood typing have been commonly used in forensic science for a while now, the use of DNA as a form of identifying criminals is relatively new. In fact, to the time of Lorraine's disappearance, there has only been one case where DNA evidence helped to secure a confession. In November 1987, accused rapist Robert Melius pleaded guilty after forensic scientists suggested that the chances of another person having exactly the same DNA profile as the one found on the crime scene would be around one in four million. Since Robert shared that same DNA profile, the odds were literally stacked against him. As yet, in 1988, DNA has not secured a conviction as a piece of evidence on its own. The spiral, double helix structure of DNA is described as the blueprint of all life. It was first identified by UK scientists James Watson and Francis Crick in 1953. In theory, DNA profiling has a lot in common with blood typing in that both systems have the same aim, using bodily fluids to trace their possible owners. In the 1980s, blood typing is advanced enough to allow police and forensic officers to narrow a sample down to around one in a thousand people. This is helpful, but since you can never rule out the other 999 people in that pool, it can only really be used to support other evidence in a case. DNA profiling, however, has far more potential. It is able to link a biological stain with just one individual. While 99% of all human DNA is identical, the devil is in the details of that remaining 1%, where the individual identifying differences can be found. Every one of us inherits half of our DNA from each of our parents, defining things like eye and hair color, heart function, height, and predisposition to disease. This is the code which individually defines us. But amongst the DNA sequences that code for very specific traits, there are other sequences, first identified in 1980 by US geneticists, which don't hold any genetic information at all. 
it is exactly these non-coding sequences that University of Leicester molecular biologist Professor Alec Jeffries was experimenting on on the 10th of December 1984 when the basis for DNA profiling as we now know it dawned on him. While studying the non-coding sequences, he realized that they vary widely from individual to individual and feature unique repetitions, a bit like molecular stutters. He developed a way of recording and comparing these stutters by producing patterns of bands or stripes on X-ray film, effectively creating a unique barcode for each human being. Professor Jeffries immediately saw the potential for this kind of individualized identification for police work, leading him initially to name the technique DNA fingerprinting, refining it a couple of years later to the more accurate DNA profiling. It is exactly this technique that Scotland Yard's forensic team are hoping to use to find out what has happened to Lorraine Benson. The handkerchief, discovered near the entrance to the alleyway where they suspect she disappeared, contained both blood and nasal mucus, exactly the kind of biological material scientists love to work with. In the early stages of a case, before the investigation really begins to take shape, a forensic scientist can only look at the science. This makes it a more impartial, factual form of investigation. The evidence does not lie, like people do. When a piece of potential evidence, like a handkerchief or earring, is found, it is placed into a forensic bag and sealed. This avoids further cross-contamination and preserves any DNA for the scientists to analyse. And the searching investigators have sent bags and bags to the lab for examination, unsure yet what will prove significant. Forensic scientist Julie Allard is assigned to the case, as she's already dealing with the investigation into the series of sexual assaults that had occurred in nearby Kingston. Softly spoken, thorough and professional, Allard has earned a solid reputation in DNA profiling, specialising in sex crimes. She knows the importance of keeping an open mind and examining each piece of evidence for every clue it can share, not just the obvious ones. Since Lorraine still hasn't been found, everything that has been sent receives the same scrutiny as the lab, with investigating officers not knowing what, if any of it, will be of use. For now, all they can do is record their findings. With the scientists hard at work, investigating officers continue their hunt for more clues and witnesses. On Coombe Lane, where police suspect Lorraine was last seen, Door-to-door inquiries confirm that some residents heard screams and a scuffle in the early hours, which they had dismissed as a drunken argument. A bus driver, however, remembered seeing a young woman in a white coat, like the one Lorraine had recently bought for herself, walking purposefully along the main road. One person claimed to have seen her near the roundabout further up Coombe Lane, saying she seemed to be being supported by a man. Yet another witness opened their front door on hearing the scuffle, but assumed the man and woman he saw wrestling with one another were a romantic couple having a tiff. The various statements police collect 
revealed that Lorraine was around 40 yards away from Lotta's house when she disappeared. And it seems she was taken by a man. The descriptions from eyewitnesses of the man in question are vague at best. A shadow in the darkness. Police have little to go on, apart from the assumption that there must be a link between Lorraine's disappearance and the recent spate of attacks nearby. Believing that the handkerchief they found might have belonged to the perpetrator, they asked Julia Allard and the forensic team to cross-reference the DNA from the handkerchief with evidence gathered from other local assault cases. It's not even 7.30 in the morning on the 20th. Lorraine has been missing for a little over seven hours and the investigation is beginning to find focus. Just before midday, police dogs are brought in to help the search party. The alleyway where the handkerchief was found near the dust-disturbed car leads to some playing fields and then onto the back of a local school. Police are sure they'll find something here but the undergrowth is dense and thick with brambles. Progress is slow, but determined. The dogs haven't been on the scene long before they discover something. Pulling back a tangle of weeds and branches, police are horrified to find a woman's body. For now, they can only assume that it is Lorraine from the description they have. A formal identification will have to come later. It falls to DC Jenny Wood to break the news to Lorraine's parents that a body has been found and that police suspect that it might be Lorraine. The moment Mick answers the door, his face falls. Without her even having to say a word, he knows that the worst has happened. Disbelief and shock flood the house. Mick and Lynn had been clinging on to the hope that Lorraine would be found, if not well, at least alive. With one look at D.C. Wood's face, they know that all hope has now departed. Lorraine is gone. Police ask Mick and Lynn if they're able to come to the mortuary and identify the body, with the warning that Lorraine had clearly been in quite a fight for her life and is badly bruised and battered. Mick tells Lynn he doesn't want her to see it and goes alone. When the curtains are opened, Mick confirms that the body they have found is indeed his youngest daughter, Lorraine Benson. Or at least it used to be. Of the sight he saw in that mortuary, Mick says, that wasn't Lorraine. That was just her shell. Her soul had gone. To preserve evidence on the body, the room she's in has been sealed. Mick can't even kiss her one last time, say goodbye properly. The only thing police can do to ease her parents' pain now is to catch Lorraine's killer. And they have the tools to do just that. The autopsy reveals that Lorraine had not been sexually assaulted, but she'd fought hard to fend off her killer during the rage-fueled attack. A ligature was used to strangle her and the marks looked to match a piece of rope found in the area near her body. As well as substantial defensive bruising, the pathologist finds a bite mark on Lorraine's left forearm and her hand. Over in the forensic lab, the handkerchief that was found with both blood and mucus on it has been thoroughly tested. The blood is a match to Lorraine, 
but the mucus belongs to someone else. Who, they don't yet know, but when a suspect is caught, their DNA can be compared to the sample. Meanwhile, officers are tasked with looking into everyone in the area convicted of any type of sexual crime, no matter how small. Needless to say, this search produces hundreds of names. Without the help of computers, investigators must manually sort through each file, a painstaking and laborious task. Two months later, the process has yet to yield anything useful. But on the 2nd of February, another attack in the area gives the investigation a new lead. A man has been arrested for attempted rape, only a couple of blocks from where Lorraine's body was found. The suspect is a local 19-year-old man called John Dunn. Given the proximity of the attack to the site of Lorraine's murder, police feel they are justified in linking the cases and move John Dunn to the top of the suspect list. While police have enough evidence to question Dunn, they're going to need something compelling to secure a conviction for murder. They focus the interview on his movements, not just on the night of Lorraine's murder, but on the other significant attack dates in nearby Kingston. They also take a blood sample from him and send it across to the lab for the forensic team to examine. A warehouse worker from the local area, Dunn is a six-foot-tall, chubby, mousy-haired man who has already been to prison for rape when he was 15. On his release, police were warned that he might strike again. Could Lorraine have been his next victim? Initially, Dunn denies all knowledge of Lorraine, claiming never to have seen her. But the forensic officers are busy working their magic, and they have more than just DNA up their sleeve. The car with a layer of dust that had been disturbed during Lorraine's struggle with her attacker has also been scrutinized. A closer study of the paintwork reveals fresh scratches in the dust with strange zigzag lines in them. Julie Allard initially checks these against the fabric of Lorraine's coat. The zigzag marks don't match the material. But then she realizes that the teeth of the zipper could have made them. A quick series of test experiments reveal that she is right. It could be argued that Lorraine's isn't the only such coat with the only such zip, but the discovery does help to corroborate some of the other evidence they have found so far. Julie Allard's team are also looking at the bite marks on Lorraine's arm. With the suspect in custody, they can now pursue finding a dental match. She requests a bite impression from Dunn. This mold allows a forensic odontologist to confirm that the bite marks on Lorraine's arm were made by Dunn. With evidence against their prime suspect mounting, police couldn't have asked for a better result than what comes next. Bearing in mind that DNA profiling is still in its infancy when it comes to forensic police work, the team are about to make an historic breakthrough. The test on the handkerchief produced a DNA result on the nasal mucus. With John Dunn's blood sample in hand, they now have his DNA too, and are able to compare the results. With a likelihood of one in one and a half million for the white Caucasian population, Julie Allard is able to say that the DNA on the handkerchief is Dunn's. The result is a double first. 
the first time a DNA result has been obtained from a substance other than blood, and the first time a murderer has been identified using DNA profiling alone. Police now have their irrefutable evidence. The inquiry into Lorraine Benson's murder is a perfect example of all parts of the investigation team working together to bring about the right results. From the officers at the initial call-out, escalating the report of a missing young woman to the detectives so early, through the dedicated searches and the professional actions of the scenes of crime officers to preserve evidence, to the expertise of the forensic team and their innovative and groundbreaking techniques. With their evidence mounting, police are able to put more pressure on John Dunn to confess. They have to stick to the letter of the law to make sure they don't jeopardize their case on a formality and can only hold him without charge for a limited time. But even after they've released him, they're able to bring him back in for questioning, which they do again and again. DC Gary Shorrocks and his partner have been slowly building a level of trust with Dunn throughout this process. But Shorrocks is as surprised as anyone when Dunn hands him a confession in one of their interviews. Dunn admits in this pre-prepared, written confession that the handkerchief was his and that it was Lorraine's blood on it. Keen to keep Lorraine's parents, Mick and Lynn, in the picture, police call to let them know the wait is over. They're 100% sure they've got their man. I must be bloody thick, Dunn said to police, admitting to taking a cocktail of amphetamine tablets and a skinful of cider before heading out to find a woman, any woman, to rape. On October the 20th, 1989, the trial of John Dunn for the murder of Lorraine Benson begins. Investigating officer D.C. Shorrocks accompanies Mick and Lynn to the court to watch Dunn being let out. D.C. Shorrocks notes that Lorraine's father rises from his chair, fists clenched the moment Dunn is brought into the courtroom. Like any father, if he could have just five minutes alone with a man who brutally murdered his daughter, he would gladly take it. Arguably, John Dunn only pleads guilty because of the weight of evidence gathered against him by a formidable team. His conviction, while it will never bring Lorraine back, can at least give her family the security that he will never hurt another young woman again. With his admission of guilt and the compelling evidence against him, Dunn is easily convicted of Lorraine's murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. In passing his sentence, the judge tells him, you must not be released until you no longer constitute a danger to women. If that means you will be detained for the rest of your life, so be it. While the trial of John Dunn was relatively straightforward in the end, the process of gathering and securing the evidence against him was completely groundbreaking. Never before in the history of science had a DNA profile been extracted from nasal mucus. Never before in the history of British criminal law had a suspect been identified and convicted on DNA evidence alone. Massive strides were made in this case, which have paved the way for thousands of convictions since, including countless previously unsolved crimes, which thanks to DNA evidence, have now been laid to rest. As for John Dunn, 
He was jailed for life, but in 2006 he became eligible for parole. In 2016, despite protests from Lorraine's parents, he was transferred to an open prison. Mick and Lynn Benson continue to serve a life sentence of their own. Despite the science and dogged detective work that found Lorraine's killer and saw him brought to justice, they will never have the closure they need. We think of her all the time, they recently told a national paper. Would she be married? Would we have grandchildren? We brought her ashes home, so she's here with us. I still talk to Lorraine and say goodnight. While it is not a legacy any of her family wanted, the case of Lorraine Benson's murder marked a huge advance in forensic investigation of criminal cases, paving the way for thousands more to be brought to justice. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. A shocking murder rocks a close-knit community in Salisbury. On All Hallows' Eve in 1908, a woman's scream pierces the night. When neighbours rush to Flora Haskell's aid, they find her young, disabled son dead in his bed. Teddy Haskell's throat has been cut. Blood drenches his sheets. Flora tells of a mysterious intruder running downstairs and how he dropped a bloody knife on his way out of the house. The local police appeal to Scotland Yard for help. The Yard sends one of its finest detectives, Chief Inspector Walter Dew, a man who prides himself on never having lost a case. It doesn't take long for Dew to make up his mind who killed Teddy Haskell. But is he right? Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boiro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Sean Coleman. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matthias Torres-Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. <laughs>